All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this chance to gather in your name tonight. We thank you for the gift of this amazing book. Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together as we consider this 17th letter in Screwtape. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to hear whatever you might want to speak to us um, through your scriptures and through Lewis's writings this night. Lord, I thank you for each person here and pray that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, uh, for those of you who are new, we are looking at C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and we're looking at it through the lens of standing against the devil's schemes. And the idea is that the devil is a liar and a deceiver, and he is proactively working to take you out. So, that means that you want to be forearmed. So we're going to say this scripture verse from Ephesians about being uh, ready for spiritual warfare. So let's say this together. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And there are many things that can be said about this passage, but the one I want to keep reminding you about is that it is very proactive. It is a very proactive uh, way of looking at spiritual warfare that you don't wait until something bad happens to you, but you are prepared and you are proactively seeking to live in God's kingdom. So a couple of reasons to review why we're studying this. The first is understanding the battle uh, a lot of people in our culture would tell you there is no battle, that everything is all good, um, everything is to be welcomed and accepted, uh, but scripture tells us a different story and says there is a battle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, a battle between good versus evil, and we have to learn how to see uh, with a spiritual perspective to understand that. The second thing is learning to think Christianly, uh, Learning to think at all is often difficult these days, uh, but thinking Christianly is a discipline that used to be part of what it was understood to mean to be a Christian, but now there's been kind of a divorce there where people and their intellectual life is over in one compartment and their faith is in a different one, and Lewis is all about trying to reconnect those. Um, lessons on the psychology of temptation uh, this book is brilliant in that respect. Lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen faith in Christ. There's a subtext all the way through this book about habits and how our habits are what make up our lives. And that if you want your life to have meaning and purpose and joy and significance, the place that you have to start is not with getting the right job or the right spouse or the right whatever it might be, which is what our culture tends to tell us, but it is taking those habits that make up what you do with the 24 hours that you're given. And then the last thing is lessons on living a boldly Christian life. Part of the problem in Christianity is that we have reduced Christianity to we go to church once a week like we go to the grocery store once a week. It's something that we do, but it's in a compartment over here. It doesn't inform all of our life. But when you look at Scripture, when you look at Jesus and you look at the book of Acts, these are people that were on fire about what they believed, and they were not uh, just walking around, you know, not being very excited about the faith. <coughs> 
So we want to try to engage that. So one of the things we've been talking about is habits, and there's this quotation from Justin Early's book, The Common Rule, only when your habits are constructed to match your worldview do you become someone who doesn't just know about God and neighbor, but someone who actually loves God and neighbor. And the problem for many of us is that we never get to that first sentence's goal. That we have habits, and then we have our worldview, but they don't connect with each other. And then we wonder why we're frustrated all the time. So I've been hawking this book for months now, but I just want to say I feel very vindicated because this book just won the top award of the best Christian book of the last 12 months. So you heard it here first. So, um, But I do commend this book to you. It is very rich and practical. So a couple of things here um, from some of the letters we've looked at before, just running through these quickly to sort of give you some context. Habits to annoy the devil, that's part of what we want to be about Um, Because the idea, if you annoy the devil, that means that you are living into what the kingdom of God is all about. So being aware of your spiritual trajectory, taking stock on a regular basis, are you growing closer to God, growing deeper in your understanding and joy and the fruit of the spirit, or are you slip sliding away? Uh, Secondly, when you experience dim uneasiness spiritually, Pray that God would open your eyes and lead you to needful repentance. Thirdly, when you experience reluctance to enter God's presence, remind yourself of the truth of Scripture expressed in the parable of the prodigal son. And this is one of the biggest deceptions that I think Satan has worked on the church, that if you screw up, if you fail, if you abandon your faith, or you do something that if your grandmother found out, she would be horrified, um, if something like that happens... Our tendency is to beat ourselves up, to think we're terrible people, that God is ashamed of us, and we certainly couldn't go to church or show our face at Bible study, and so we just stay away. And that is exactly the opposite of what Scripture says. Jesus could have told any story he wanted to about what God's forgiveness and mercy means, and he chose the parable of the prodigal son. This parable where the son has done the most awful things that could be imagined in that culture, rejecting his father, basically saying, I wish you were dead, Um, rejecting his faith, going into gross and decadent immorality. And yet in the midst of that, the father is waiting every day for his son to come back. And when the son comes back to offer himself as a servant, The father sees him and runs and throws his arms around him. And we think about, oh, isn't that so sweet that he does that? But the remarkable thing about that is in that culture, Jewish men, patriarchs, were people of great dignity. And no Jewish man would ever run in public. And so the idea of this father running to his son is as if you were a tourist at Buckingham Palace and Queen Elizabeth heard you were there and picked up her skirts and ran after you to give you a hug. It is shocking. And Jesus meant it to be shocking, but because we don't know the context, we don't understand that. But what he's trying to show is that God is longing for us to come back to him, not to stay away. Um, Fourth, invest in healthy and outgoing activities that lead to joy and avoid isolation. Isolation is a theme that Lewis talks about a lot because it's in scripture a lot. And the idea is that when you are with the people of God, that there's joy, there's meaning, there's purpose. But isolation, remember way back in the book of Genesis, it is not good for the man to be alone. And that's much more than just that Eve needs to be created. It's that we are not good to be alone and left to our own devices all the time. Some truths about spiritual warfare. Be aware of the power of nothing, wasting time, wasting your life away. And then secondly, Satan is much more likely to rely on a slow and gradual turning away than on spectacular sin. Most of us, if you think like I do, 
you think, well, you know, I haven't murdered anybody, so how bad can I really be doing? Um, but that's not what Satan is all about. Satan is wanting to take you little by little by little down the slope till you get to a place where you think, how did I ever get here? So from the next letter, as soon as you become aware you have strayed, repent and return to the Lord. See, some of these themes keep coming up. Um, embrace real pleasures that focus your heart and mind on beauty, truth, and goodness. We'll get a little bit of that in the letter tonight. Cultivate those pleasures and gifts that are part of God's design for you. We've talked about chariots of fire and that great quote, when I run, I can feel his pleasure. Embracing your design, not wishing you were somebody else, but celebrating the gifts that you have and leaning into those and seeing what God might do with them. Uh, Avoiding seeking after worldly trends and fashions at the expense of what you truly love. And then be proactive in forming new habits based upon repentance rather than wallowing in self-absorption. There's a lot in screw tape about wallowing. And sometimes we tend to think that's virtuous, that like, oh, what was me? I was really bad. Ooh, I'm going to wallow. I'm going to think about how bad I was. I'm going to think about what I might need to do, but I'm going to feel bad because God will be happy that I'm feeling bad about this. But what we miss in all of that is that we're totally out of the game. That is the most narcissistic thing you can do is to wallow in your own despair. And then two truths here. God loves you enormously as an individual, and the more you lean into your relationship with God, the more that you become authentically yourself. Uh, Some more habits from letter 14. Practice daily and hourly dependence on God. Cultivate and practice true humility. That is not thinking that you're a doormat, um, but it's instead practicing a radical focus on God and a radical focus on other people. Self-forgetfulness. Avoid narcissism, especially wallowing. There's that wallowing word again. uh, And self-contempt and selfish malaise. Uh, Practice joyful celebration of wonder in others and nature and life that leads to gratitude. Uh, We are so jaded about wonder. We are surrounded, especially here in Charleston. This is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And we look at sunset. We look at the 4,000 varieties of camellias that are blooming around Charleston. And we just think, oh. And we don't pay any attention to it. And part of what scripture tells us to do is to stop and actually see what is right in front of our faces. Because when you see that wonder and the beauty that God has made, it should fire your heart about being connected with him. And then fifthly, cultivate a high appreciation of the doctrine of creation. And then from letter 15, consciously reject tortured fear and stupid confidence as states of mind. You'll remember this is the letter about living in the present. And Screwtape says he wants people to be in constant anxiety about the future or living in the past so that all of your present moments just wash away because your real life happens in the present. And if you spend it being consumed by the future or the past, you lose your life. Attend to only two things, eternity and the present. Proactively live in the present, the only place where freedom and actuality are offered. Remember, this is the core of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. That whole part about consider the lilies, do not be anxious. He says, do not be anxious six times. It's a command. Um, I'm not going to ask you how often you were anxious this week. Uh, But there's a connection there about living in the present and avoiding anxiety. Cultivate gratitude and love. And be wary of fear, avarice, lust, and unhealthy ambition. We're going to come back to those tonight, too. Work hard for the good of posterity, but trust God for the results. Dwell in the moment with patience and or gratitude. Pray for virtues to meet challenges that lie ahead. And embrace natural happiness as a good thing. It's that great verse in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, The thief, Satan, comes only to steal kill and destroy but i have come that they might have life and have it abundantly 
And that's what this is all about, that natural happiness is a beautiful thing, whether it's just a simple meal or a walk or whatever. And remember, at the end of that letter, Screwtape says to Wormwood, why should the creature be happy? So he wants to steal your happiness and your joy. And then from last week's letter about why it's good to get a church and watch your email this week, I found a hilarious video about this that I will commend to you that's called Church Shoppers. And it is, well, at least I thought it was funny. So, habits to annoy the devil. Commit to faithful attendance and involvement in a church. We talked last week about there's this bizarre phenomenon that's happened in the past 50 years um, that's been unknown in the past 2,000 years of Christian history, which is people who say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But they don't have a church or a body or a fellowship. And in Scripture, that is just unknown. In Christian history, it's unknown. And we said it's like trying out for the football team and going through and getting the uniform and everything else. And then once you make the team, you just sit at home. Well, are you on the team? Certainly doesn't seem like as much of a priority. So this letter is all about why the church is important, cultivating humility and a teachable spirit, seeking after the whole counsel of God with a high view of scripture, uh, encouraging clergy leadership that weds the proclamation of true biblical belief and Christian love. One of the reasons this is so important is that scripture tells us over and over again that we are to speak the truth in love. And so much of the problem that we see in our culture today in the church as well as in the world is that you may have people that are good at speaking the truth, but they don't do it in a way that's loving. Or they're people that are very loving, but they are so loving that they're unable to speak truth. And that's why being in the center of that continuum, speaking the truth in love, is so important. So that brings us to tonight's letter. And we're going to uh, have a little context here for a moment. So part of the context here is that when Lewis was writing, uh, which wasn't really that long ago, this was in the 1940s, um, during the Blitz in England, this is when this is being written, uh, people were still very aware of the seven deadly sins. And the seven deadly sins, at least some people thought they were actually deadly sins uh, and that were to be taken seriously. And we have, we have largely lost that in our culture. Um, the word sin is very offensive to a lot of people because that implies that there's something wrong and that implies that there's right and wrong, and that is very offensive to people. I used to go to a church uh, when we lived in Atlanta that had been a really wonderful and very orthodox uh, church in the Anglican tradition, and uh, the bishop who was appointed was of a different doctrinal persuasion than most of the church, so he got rid of the rector and brought in someone else. And it was very interesting because, you know, if you have grown up in the Episcopal or Anglican tradition, you know, part of the liturgy is the confession, and it's in every service. So the first thing that happened is we started, we were instructed that we would stand for the confession. So that was kind of interesting. Then we just stopped doing the confession, and then some people complained, and so we did it during Lent. So we did the confession during Lent, but then after we got out of Lent, he actually preached a sermon and said, we're not going to have that anymore, because sin, talking about sin, makes people feel bad, and we are all made in the image of God, and we, are, we all need to be affirmed right where we are. And then he went on to say, and Jesus himself was a sinner. And we were kind of like, woo! Um, and Jesus overcame some of the sin in his life. Now, realize wow. this is a contradiction because he just said there's no sin. But anyway, Jesus was a sinner. He overcame the sin in his life, and he became a son of God. And we could become a son of God in exactly the same way. So we left that church. Uh, but... 
there's a lot of that kind of stuff out there, and you get on that slippery slope. Yeah, you think standing up for confession is not that big a deal, but look where that went. And that was about six months that that went. So anyway, so we're going to talk a little bit about gluttony tonight. And I think this is going to change your idea of what gluttony is. Most of us, gluttony has been redefined. Um, Screwtape would say by the philological arm of our father below uh, that... Gluttony has been redefined to mean just eating a lot all the time. And that is not what gluttony means, and it's not particularly in the medieval sense of the seven deadly sins, not what it means. So let's read this and unpack it a little bit. My dear Wormwood, the contemptuous way in which you spoke of gluttony as a means of catching souls in your last letter only shows your ignorance. One of the great achievements of the last hundred years has been to deaden the human conscience on that subject, so that by now you will hardly find a sermon preached or a conscience troubled about it in the whole length and breadth of Europe. This has been largely affected by concentrating all our efforts on gluttony of delicacy, not gluttony of excess. Your patient's mother, you might remember we read about the mother way back early on, uh, your patient's mother, as I learned from the dossier, and you might have learned from Glubose, Glubose is the tempter who's working on the mother, <laughs> is a good example. She would be astonished, one day I hope will be, to learn that her whole life is enslaved to this kind of sensuality, which is quite concealed from her by the fact that the quantities involved are small. But what do quantities matter, provided we can use a human belly and palate to produce querulousness, impatience, uncharitableness, and self-concern. Glubos has this old woman well in hand. She is a positive terror to hostesses and servants. She is always turning from what has been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a cup of tea, weak, but not too weak, and the teeniest, weeniest bit of really crisp toast. You see, because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what has been set before her, she never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she believes that she is practicing temperance. In a crowded restaurant, she gives a little scream at the plate which some overworked waitress has set before her and says, oh, that's far, far too much. Take it away and bring me about a quarter of it. If challenged, she would say she was doing this to avoid waste. In reality, she does it because the particular shade of delicacy to which we have enslaved her is offended by the sight of more food than she happens to want. The real value of the quiet, unobtrusive work which Glubos has been doing for years on this old woman can be gauged by the way which, in which her belly now dominates her whole life. The woman is in what may be called the all-I-want state of mind. All she wants is a cup of tea properly made, or an egg properly boiled, or a slice of bread properly toasted, but she never finds any servant or any friend who can do these simple things properly because her properly conceals an insatiable demand for the exact and almost impossible palatal pleasures which she imagines she remembers from the past, a past described by her as the days when you could get good servants, but known to us as the days when her Senses were more easily pleased, and she had pleasures of other kinds, which made her less dependent on those of the table. Meanwhile, the daily disappointment produces daily ill temper. Cooks give notice, and friendships are cooled. If ever the enemy introduces into her mind a faint suspicion she is too interested in food, Glubos counters it by suggesting to her that she doesn't mind what she eats herself, but she does like to have things nice for her boy. In fact, of course, her greed has been one of the chief sources of his domestic discomfort for many years. Now, your patient, 
is his mother's son. While working your hardest, quite rightly on other fronts, you must not neglect a little quiet infiltration in respect of gluttony. Being a male, he's not so likely to be caught by the all-I-want camouflage. Males are best turned into gluttons with the help of their vanity. They ought to be made to think themselves very knowing about food, to pique themselves on having found the only restaurant in town where steaks are really properly cooked. What begins as vanity can then be gradually turned into habit. But however you approach it, the great thing is to bring him into the state in which the denial of any one indulgence, it matters not which, champagne or tea, sole colbert or cigarettes, puts him out. For then his charity, justice, and obedience are all at your mercy. Mere excess in food is much less valuable than delicacy. Its chief use is a kind of artillery preparation for attacks on chastity. On that, as on every other subject, keep your man in a condition of false spirituality. Never let him notice the medical aspect. Keep him wondering what pride or lack of faith has delivered him into your hands when a simple inquiry into what he's been eating or drinking for the last 24 hours would show him whence your ammunition comes and thus enable him by a very little abstinence to imperil your lines of communication. If he must think of the medical side of chastity, feed him the grand lie we have made the English humans believe that physical exercise and excess and consequent fatigue are especially favorable to this virtue. How they can believe this and face in the notorious lustfulness of sailors and soldiers may well be asked. But we use the schoolmasters to put the story about men who were really interested in chastity as an excuse for games and therefore recommended games as an aid to chastity. But this whole business is too large to deal with at the tail end of a letter. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So, there is a lot of stuff in here. And one of the things that is particularly interesting is uh, that we happen to hit this letter on gluttony right at the debut of the Charleston Food and Wine (laughs) Festival this week. And there's another, I was trying to find this, and I didn't have time to go look it up, but there's a... uh, And another book, Lewis talks about the idea of culture that has begun worshiping food. And he talks about having something that's almost like a striptease show with food on the stage and this big curtain. And that as they play the sort of that boom, 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 boom music, you know, uh, the curtain gradually goes up and there's this beautifully cooked piece of meat up there. Now, I don't want to rain on anyone's parade if you're going to the Food and Wine Festival, but if we begin worshiping the food that we eat, just take a couple of steps back from that and think about what that means philosophically. That, that is a disturbing place to be. So uh, we want to look at first this idea of practicing regular self-examination with respect to the seven deadly sins. And if we'd had more time, I was going to do a little exercise to see how many of the seven deadly sins we could name and what um, other interesting ones you might come up with that are not on the list. Um, Just as an aside, because I have to say this, go back sometime in the Stephen Colbert show archives and find the time where he had the representative on the show who really wanted to get the Ten Commandments posted across the United States. And he started interviewing this guy and he said, well, you know, if these Ten Commandments are so important, why don't you tell me what they are? And, ooh, it went south really quickly. Uh, I think cleanliness was next to godliness might have been in there. But it was bad. But all of that to say, most of us including myself, we probably couldn't name what the seven deadly sins are. And the interesting thing about that is that for most of Christian history, whether you were Protestant or you were Catholic, whatever you were, this was part of spiritual examination. This was something that you thought about, that you looked at, and considered kind of how you were doing in these different areas. So the seven deadly sins, and there's a great article in one of the handouts on this, 
are pride, I think we know what that is, envy, anger, sloth. Sloth. I love that word. It's so much fun to say. Uh, But sloth, unless you heard me preach on sloth a couple of months ago, most people in this room have probably never heard a sermon on sloth. It is right up there with gluttony on things that don't ever get preached about, but it's all over the Bible. And it is, it's not just laziness, it's idleness. It's squandering your life. It's remembering that you are gifted with all of these gifts and potentialities, and you squander it by being idle and just wasting your time away in Margaritaville or wherever it might be. (laughs) So that's sloth. Avarice, that's another really fun thing to say. Um, Avarice is extreme greed that's linked to covetousness. Um, Gluttony and lust. So those I think we've got a little bit better handle on. But one of the things about gluttony that we miss you know, most people, if you asked, if you went on King Street with a microphone, what's gluttony? They would say it's somebody that eats too much. And that is not, that, that is a subset of gluttony, but there's a lot more. It has to do with sensuality, sensual appetites, and keeping those um, at a level that are more or less out of control. Drunkenness is a part of gluttony. It's subsumed in gluttony, drinking to excess all the time. Um, any kind of sensual indulgence can be gluttony um, when it's overdone. And then the, most of the screw tape letter focuses on that gluttony of delicacy, of saying, I have to have everything exactly my way. And uh, I could tell you some stories that would raise your hair um, from when we had our bed and breakfast and what people, anybody that's ever worked as a waitress or in a restaurant will know that there are crazy people that are out there. And um, what they ask for and how they have to have it be just for them. Um, And I'm all about customer service, but there's a point at which you go beyond. So um, this whole idea is that we practice self-examination. We look at those areas, and if you're really bold, you sit down with someone who knows you well and talk about what you might be struggling with. It's really better to do this mutually than just have it be a one-way street. Uh, But that is a very valuable conversation to have. And, of course, Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The reason this is so important is if you don't practice self-examination and you don't look at these areas, your life can be full of them and you can have absolutely no idea. Absolutely none. So that's the reason that for centuries and even millennia, people who were following Jesus used this as a filter to look at what's going on in their lives. Secondly, practice kindness and self-forgetfulness, especially toward those serving you. Let me just say that again. Practice kindness and self-forgetfulness, especially toward those serving you. And again, if you've ever been in food service or lived in a tourist town like Charleston, (laughs) you will regularly see hostesses, and waiters and waitresses and food service personnel being yelled at and screamed at and cussed at and all of those kinds of things. And not to say that if there's a mistake, you shouldn't address it, but it needs to be done with kindness and self-forgetfulness. And we need to have a special attitude of mercy and grace toward people who are serving us. And I don't know how many of you actually, like, talk to people that are in those kinds of roles when they're serving you um, and when they're stressed and tell them that you appreciate them. But it is really interesting that a lot of times if you do that, they will actually begin to cry because it is so rare 
for someone to treat them as a person made in the image of God instead of as a little role or an automaton who's designed to do your bidding. And this is something Christians need to recover because a lot of times we feel like we're owed things from people and we come in and we want to lord it over. And remember, Jesus said that's not what we're to do. He says that's what the Gentiles, the people that don't know God, do that. And the scripture verse um, from Colossians, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves. That means it's not you naturally necessarily, but you put it on. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That is radical. And most of us, we hear that and we're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, We know about that. We've heard it. We have a distant relationship with it. Uh, But in terms of actually having that inform our actions and our attitudes, um, at least if you were like me, you are very often a long way off from that. And Christians are supposed to be different from the world noticeably. And this is one of the areas where that is so important. Christians are to be radically focused on others, seeking, trying to think about each person that you encounter during the day. How can I be a blessing to this person? How can I leave this person better than they were before they saw me? But that's often not the attitude that we have. We're looking for what we can get out of people instead of what we can give to them. Thirdly, keep fleshly appetites in check and do not pursue them as an end in themselves. So fleshly appetites would go right back up to those seven deadly sins, but it would be primarily eating, drinking, and sex. Keep those appetites in check and do not pursue them as an end in themselves. This is one of the areas where our culture has gotten really off. Um, All we forget, the pleasure of eating the pleasure of drinking, the pleasure of sex are all things that God created. God made all those things. God made those things pleasurable. But they are all to be a means to an end. They're not an end in themselves. And one of the things that has changed radically, really just in the past 25 years, is that it used to be, I mean, for a long time, people have gone out and had a beer or a glass of wine with their friends. That's been going on since Jesus' day. Maybe not the beer, but the wine. Uh, but what's hap- what that was is that was a means to enjoy fellowship together. And people were not going out. The, the goal of going out was not to get wasted. And now, for many people, uh, hopefully... Those of you who are older are not experiencing this too much, but those of you who are younger, I'm sure, see this all the time. If you go out on King Street, you know, on a weekend night, uh, most people are not there having a drink to facilitate a warm and convivial conversation with their friend. You know, they are drinking shots. Um, they are seeing who can get the most thoroughly wasted Um, And it's become an end in itself. And it's tragic because really what I think is going on there is it is a search for intimacy and connectedness and joy, but it's a false image of it, and it doesn't satisfy that people get stuck in it and don't know what to do. So, again, the scripture verse, Many walk that are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Their God is their belly, and the thing they're serving is these fleshly appetites. And there's a great commentary on this, an old-fashioned commentary, and sometimes these old-fashioned Bible commentaries are some of the best ones. This is from Matthew Poole, and he said, The great business of these 
their sensuality, their good eating and drinking, they mind the pleasing of their carnal appetite as if it were their God instead of our Lord Jesus Christ. Really, they serve their own belly, love their pleasures indeed more than God. And the sad thing about this is, again, when you put those pleasures in their proper context, they are things that are designed to build fellowship, to build joy, to build intimacy. But when we take them to excess and make them ends in themselves, not only are they empty, but they literally can kill you. And uh, that's part of the reason that we see, we talked um, a couple of weeks ago about how only um, for the first time since they've started keeping statistics has life expectancy in the United States gone down. And the reason for that is from the diseases of despair, which are alcoholism, drug addiction, opioids, and suicide in the 18 to 35 age group. And there's been such a spike in that that it's brought the whole life expectancy of our country down. And it's profoundly sad because the church should have the answer to that, um, which is the gospel. And then fourthly, cultivate equanimity and good humor, especially in stressful situations. Does anybody want to take a stab at defining equanimity? On a level. Equal? Hmm? Equal. On a level. Okay, on a level. Yes, that's right. Um, equanimity is, it's. I almost said serenity, but serenity has got too many sort of Buddhist New Age, ding, 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 um, going with it. Um, yeah, the little bell and all of that. But it, it's a little bit like serenity. It basically means you're unflappable. Equanimity, you are level-headed. No matter what gets thrown at you, you are not going to flip out or, um, as the expression is, go postal on someone. Um, so cultivate equanimity. It is not always easy to have equanimity. When you are at the DMV, it may not be easy to have equanimity. When you go through the drive through That's where the slots work. Yeah, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps you may have to repent of that. Um, but one of the things that happens is that we lose our sense of humor in those situations. And if we cultivate equanimity, if we work to not get riled up, to stay calm, to practice serenity, especially in stressful situations, that will be a witness to people. Because that is not the way people usually are. And um, I could tell you some really funny stories about this because my wife, Jane, is working at the Dewberry now, which is, of course, a luxury hotel. And everything about it is luxurious, including the pricing. Um, (laughs) But if anything goes wrong, especially if you're paying a lot of money, people go crazy. (laughs) And... um, it's just very interesting to hear some of those stories. So, but the scripture verse is an important one. Um, this again is from Philippians. Um, Philippians is such a great book. Jeff is doing that in Rector's Forum Sunday mornings right now. If you've never studied Philippians, do yourself a favor and come to that. So, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a powerful verse, and there's so much in that. The first thing, let your gentleness be evident to all. Our gentleness, our calm, our equanimity should be evident to all. It should be part of our witness as Christians to be unflappable, to be kind, to be the person that doesn't flip out or get wigged out or start screaming or gesturing or whatever else might happen. Um, but the other thing that is so interesting here is this sequence. Do not be anxious about anything. Is that easy to do? No. So the interesting thing here is we're given direction on how to avoid wallowing and being anxious. In every situation, notice 
every situation, not just when you feel like it, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So whatever it is, take all of it to God, ask him for his intervention, thank him, pray for wisdom, pray for his intervention, and then the peace of God, which transcends all your understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That is a very rich verse to meditate on. And then lastly, practice generosity in your actions and with your possessions. Christians used to be known for their generosity. And it was something that was so radical that it made the Roman Empire set up and take notice. And some of you who are Latin students may remember having to struggle through some of the letters that Pliny wrote to Tacitus and things like that in class. But if you read any of those, very often problems with the Christians come up in those letters. And in one of those letters, he talks about how terrible it is that the Christians are making the Romans look bad because the Romans had a habit of people that didn't have a lot of money and then they died. They just sort of left them to rot or sort of hid them away somewhere, but they didn't trouble to bury them with any kind of decency. And the Christians took upon themselves in the ancient world to start burying these people who had died, who didn't have any money or any family left to take care of them. And But it was humiliating to the Romans that the Christians were doing this. And that's an example of absolutely selfless generosity. They didn't get anything out of that. And it was hard work. But now, you know, even to let somebody borrow your car is a pretty radical thing for a lot of people. Um, we, we get so focused on our possessions and we're worried that somebody's going to mess them up. And we might be worried with good reason, but we are, we are called to be generous. It is part of our witness as Christians. And we're called to be generous with our possessions. And that means that we need to prayerfully and with discernment, when we know people who are in need, we need to see what we can do about it. That's not always easy. It's awkward. It means awkward conversations sometimes. But it is so very important because it is part of our witness. And again, um, from First Timothy and from Hebrews here, and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Command them, this is talking to people who are rich, which you may not feel rich, but compared to the standard of what is rich and poor across the world, all of us are rich. So this would apply to us. Command them, command us, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And I just want to conclude by focusing on that last little phrase, the life that is truly life. I think for many of us, the life that we live, even as people who um, believe in Jesus, so often we are like the Truman Show or like Groundhog Day. We are not engaged. We are just doing the same thing, and it's like the same, that old Chinese definition of insanity, of doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That one day we're going to do the same thing, and then all of a sudden we're going to experience joy. Or we're going to keep searching after this right job, and when we finally get the right one, then suddenly we're going to be fulfilled and happy, and we'll be able to pay all our bills, and it's going to be awesome. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have a good job and all of that. But the problem is we make those things the things that we pursue. And all of our energy is going into pursuing those things. And what Lewis is trying to tell us in this letter about gluttony is that when we are pursuing the wrong things, and particularly when we're pursuing them to excess, 
It will kill us. And we will not only not experience joy, but we will end up somewhere and think, how did we ever get there? It's like that old trite cliche, which is a cliche because it's true, um, that if you are climbing the ladder of success, but the ladder is perched on the wrong building, uh, you're going to get to the top, and that will be the most depressing day of your life. So all of that to say, God wants to give you the life that is truly life. He wants you to experience joy. Remember, the fruit of the spirits, fruit of the spirit includes joy. It is something that Christians should have. And so what we need to do if we're not experiencing that, part of the key to figuring out how to open our hearts up to begin to experience that is to do what Lewis talks about here and to practice some of these habits so that we get a handle on where our trajectory is off so that we can correct our course. So just to finish with our little quotation, our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of joy and creativity and beauty and truth and goodness. Lord, we confess to you that we spend so much of our lives looking down or looking at ourselves and being consumed by gluttony of various sorts. And Lord, we miss out on the joy and fulfillment that you long to give to us. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see and that you might lead us more and more in the direction of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that in addition to believing in Jesus, that you would help us to actually follow in his footsteps. Lord, we thank you for this time and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.